0: Uh, If you've got a Bible or an iPad or something, uh, turn to Exodus uh, chapter 1, which is uh, what Andrew's going to be preaching from today. I'll be reading from uh, the ESV. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each uh, with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All these descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Uh, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, Uh, but let the male children live. Uh, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. the midwives said to Pharaoh, "Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and give birth before the midwife comes to them." So God dealt uh, with the midwives, uh, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Thanks, Andrew.
1: Now I'm hoping this mic will be okay. Oh, well, friends, uh, let's pray together. Our Lord and Father... Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Soften our hearts that we might receive your word. Transform our wills that we might be doers of it. Loose our tongues that we might proclaim it. And we ask this for the glory of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Friends, the world that I live in, the world that we live in is a world of significant people and I'm reminded of it every day. Uh, Each day, you see, I hear of people of influence. I hear of politicians, of business people, uh, who daily shape the world that we live in. I hear of the exploits of our sportsmen and women, uh, who are obviously the centre of world attention. I listen to the stories of famous people who have shaped the lives of uh, my country and our people. Even in church, I'm constantly confronted by gifted or impressive church leaders, And I often find myself wondering, who am I in a world such as this? Uh, And I remember the first time I ever travelled to Pakistan for ministry. And uh, I watched whole cities from aeroplane windows. Uh, I saw crowded streets, bustling cities just crammed with people. And as I watched and as I listened, I remember what happened to me. I found myself again wondering, who am I in a world such as this? And I could not help feeling that I was a person of very little significance in a very large universe. Were I to die, I wondered, would there be many people at all who knew that I had passed away? And would my absence be missed by more than a family and a few noted friends? And I was reminded of this uh, just a few years ago when uh, we buried my father. Uh, My dad was an able and impressive paediatric surgeon. He was well known in his field. Um, My father, though, uh, apart from his family, would have had uh, less than 20 people at his funeral. Uh, In the contemporary world, you see, this is what life is like. People forget quickly and able and impressive people pass away quickly and we don't remember them because we've moved on to someone else. Uh, And friends, in the contemporary world of church planting, we are also constantly reminded, are we not, of our smallness. Uh, We struggle, you know, as we struggle to find money to keep ourselves and our families off the breadline, as we battle to reach out to our local neighbourhood, as we battle that hard-heartedness of Aussies uh, and uh, we listen online to impressive leaders and church planters whose ministries seem to go from strength to strength while ours struggles where we listen to pastors of growing churches and pioneers and influential leaders, Uh, those experiences drive you as as they have driven me to think, who am I in a world such as this? Am I not so insignificant to be almost unknown? And I find that question asked by my friends who are starting church plants and by those who are struggling with them. Friends, if we feel like this, then I want you to come with me today for another perspective. You see, I want you to come with me to enter an ancient world uh, and uh, that ancient world springs out of the book of Exodus and I want you to listen to what God has to say to us in this context. You see, in the book of Exodus, he will tell us an alternative view for the, to the world and I want you to view yourself not as your brain sometimes is tempted to view yourself. But I want you to accept God's view about you and to take it on board and have it bedded down in your life and your psyche and your ministry. As you think about yourself, I want you to think about yourself not as you feel in those times of desperation, but as God tells you you are. So let's start by looking at the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1. These first seven verses are critically important for understanding the passage and even for understanding the book of Exodus as a whole. As happens often in scripture, the opening words of a book are designed to shape our overall understanding of it. In the original language, the very first word of Exodus has the word and or so attached to it. And what the writer is trying to do for us is he's saying, if you want to understand the book that I'm about to write or I'm about to give to you, then I want you to know that you need to understand it in the light of what has come before it. Our author is indicating that if you want to understand this, you must see it as part and parcel of a, of a story that began in Genesis. And our author reinforces this by alluding to specific parts of the Genesis story. For example, verses one to four virtually repeat the listing of the sons of Jacob found in Exodus thirty two, twenty two to twenty six. Verse two reiterates Genesis forty six, verse twenty seven, which says that the sons of Joseph who were born in Egypt were two hundred, and the persons who came from Egypt were seventy. Verse 6 takes up Genesis 50, verse 26, which told us that Joseph had died in Egypt. The point is that these people, you see, these people in Egypt are a known people. They are the sons of Israel who came up out of Egypt with Jacob. The mention of Jacob, of course, is to raise in our minds the name Israel that reminds us that these are not just a known people. You see, these people here in Egypt on this day, in this place, are a people of promise. They are descendants of Jacob or Israel. They are descendants of Abraham. And being descendants of Abraham, they they are inheritors of the promises given to Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12. They are those who are promised a land and nation and were promised that they would be blessed by God. And they are those through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, these are a known people. They are a people of promise. The first; These are the first five verses of Exodus. Verse 6 echoes the very last verse of Genesis. It records that Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. And then verse 7 transitions us to a new situation in Egypt. In the promised land, the people of God, you see, struggled with the promise of becoming a great nation, didn't they? Woman after woman was infertile, barren, couldn't bear a child. And her husband and she struggled with it over and over again. They, They could not become this great nation. They struggled to have children, let alone be a great nation. But not here in Exodus chapter 1. No, no, look at verse 7. They may be out of the land of promise, but here in Egypt, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, friends, let me read those verses to you, that verse to you again. And as I do... I want you to think about the words that you hear and the order in which they occur. Where have you heard these words before? Where have they been ordered in this way beforehand? So think hard and listen as I read again. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was Filled with them did you spot it? Did you hear it? If you didn't, perhaps I could tell you. Keep your eyes on Exodus chapter one verse seven, while I read to you from some earlier parts of scripture. so just listen, don't turn to them listen, keep your eye on chapter on verse uh, verse seven. The first one comes from Genesis chapter one verse twenty eight and God has just created humans, he's blessed them, and he says to them with these words, "Be fruitful." and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But let me read to you another. This comes after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, God the Creator blesses Noah and his sons and he says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now Genesis 9, 7, God continues to speak to Noah and he says to him, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. But let's go even further into Genesis. Uh, Let's go now to chapter 35, verse 11, where God speaks to Jacob, the inheritor of the promises to Abraham. And he says to him, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful. And multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Can you hear the similarity of language? It is deliberate what is happening here in Exodus chapter 1. Can you see what is going on in Exodus 1? You see, Genesis proclaims that God is the creator. As creator, the purposes for his world is fruitfulness and blessing. And his chosen nation here in Egypt is part of that purpose. They, you see, are not just the inheritors of the promises to Abraham. They are also the inheritors of God, the creator, to all creation. And this nation has become the focus of God's creative energy. They are the place where, that, where it is going. They are the means by which his purposes for fruitfulness and blessing in all the world are focused and from which they will come about. It's a remarkable passage when you read it in the light of Genesis. Now with that in mind, let's look at what happens in Egypt to this people. The next section of Exodus stretches from verse 8 all the way through to verse 14. I'm going to skim through it with you. Verses 1 to 7 had already hinted that trouble was coming because verse 5 reminded us that Joseph, who had been an important person in the land, is now, verse 6, dead. There's no deliverer, you see. No deliverer left. No hero for this nation. Verse 8 builds on the theme when he tells us that a new king has emerged who knows nothing of Joseph. A nation who was known and respected in Egypt is now what? Unknown and unprotected. And into that context comes the voice of a new king. Verses 9 and 10. Listen to his words. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join with our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. I wonder if you can hear the tension and the conflict here. God has spoken about his purpose of fruitfulness and blessing for his people. This king Speaks against the blessing and seeks to combat it and destroy it, and with those words put side by side, we are, we see a battle begin. It will last fifteen chapters, but let's read on. Look at what this king is scared of. Verse ten. He 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 fears that this people will become even more numerous and that they'll escape from the land in, in the case of war. Now. Intriguingly, the word used here for escape is the same term used to describe the Exodus itself in in places such as Exodus 13 verse 18. In other words, what the writer is doing is he's planting this little seed in the text for us. And this text is giving us a hint of the future. In other words, what is happening here is that we are being told that this king will lose his battle with God the Creator. The Israelites will continue to grow in number as they are blessed by their Creator, and they will eventually escape or go up out of Egypt. But this king at this point can't know this. He's got no idea. He's in power. All he knows is what he sees and what he fears. And so he generates a new policy. Where God keeps promises, this king breaks undertakings given to a previous regime, he uh, turns protected people into state slaves. And I wonder if you can see what's going on. You see, God's desire is for blessing and order. This king opposes God's desire. He sets himself against God's plans. He is an agent of chaos and disorder. Now, we who have read the Bible up until this point, uh, we know about this God, don't we? We've seen him at work already. We saw him do something in Genesis 1, didn't we? Do you remember he turned the emptiness that was there into order? We saw him when, he, saw, when uh, he remembered Noah and his family on top of the chaotic waters in Genesis 8. We saw him when he saw the emptiness of Sarai's womb. And when he spoke his word to Abraham and promised that even from a womb such as that will come a great nation. We know this God can turn emptiness into life. He can create a nation from an infertile woman. And so we wait for him to act. And he does. Look at verse 12. Even though we're not told directly that he's the instigator, we are told in verse 12 that the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. Succeeding verses indicate that the more they multiply and spread, the more frightened the Egyptians become. And the more frightened they become, the more oppressive they become. And so they force into slavery these people in the field and in huge building projects. They they are people who have no civil rights. They're organised into large work gangs. They become an anonymous mass intimated by the references to them, no longer as the sons of Israel but the Hebrews, this anonymous mass, as it were, of people. They lose all individuality in the eyes of their oppressors and their lot becomes intolerably cruel. As it turns out, we have ancient texts that tell us what life was like for ordinary workers who were not slaves in in Egypt at this time. And the presentation is awful. It paints a picture of what life would have been like. It would have been un- overwhelmingly tough, unrelenting, wearying. The workers would have, knocked, would have just fallen on the floor of their huts at the end of the day, thoroughly wretched and miserable, dirty, untidy, and they were not slaves. The life of an Israelite slave must have been one of incredibly cruel bondage. The bondage is apparently re- enforced ruthlessly. That's a picture of the end of verse 14. Now look at the verses which follow. With verses 15 and 16 we enter a new stage in the narrative. Uh, the king's escalating anxiety brings uh, uh, bears fruit in escalating harshness. Such harshness is demonstrated in three speeches. Uh, The king speaks three times. Verse 16, he commands the midwives to eliminate all baby boys. The second speech, verse 18, this time he questions the midwives as to why his instructions are not being followed. Third speech, verse 22, he skips over the midwives and just orders all his people to get into this pogrom. Now I want you to notice something about this passage. There's a critical element in it. Did you notice that in the whole story, the king of Egypt is never named? Although he's given the title Pharaoh, he is often simply a or the king. And did you notice how the people of God are now referred to? In verses 1 and 7, they're the sons or the people of Israel. From verse 15, they're simply referred to as the Hebrews. In the verses that follow in chapter 2, until Moses is named, all other references to to specific people lack names. And yet at this critical point in the story that we've got to, where many of the people are largely nameless, these two women are singled out. And they are named. Do you know how many women are named in the book of Exodus? Six. We've got a third of them here with us. Here, one-third of the named women in the whole 40 chapters of the book of Exodus are named. And their names i don't forget them, Shipra and Puah. And the focus is on them. And we find out why they're so significant. Uh, in verses 17 and 21, we are told that in the pla- this place filled with people who do not fear God, these women do. And their fear of God expresses itself as wise, as wisdom always does, in a practical action that lines up with God's purposes for his people. Look at verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children go. You see, these people, these women, acted to preserve God's people. And God's creative purpose in his world. As God would later on rescue his people out of Egypt. So these two women rescue God's people here. You see they feared God. They aligned themselves with God and his purpose. They acted as his agents of his purpose of blessing and fruitfulness. And look at how God responds to them. In verses 20 to 21 he responds to their fear with blessing their work. There's the story of Exodus 1. Now, I know you all know it quite well. Hopefully you've seen some things you haven't seen before. But what I want to do now is use this story to help us reflect on the world we live in and how we think about ourselves. You see, these verses present us with a two-sided perspective on the world that we live in. On the one hand, verses 1 to 7 tell us about the Creator's world. On, uh, it is a world where the power of God's blessing is strong and prevalent. It is a world where God makes promise after promise and fulfills them. Where God's word and his purpose flourish. God's world is a world there in one to seven of blessing and fruitfulness. But friends, you know, I know, there is another side to the world we live in. And we see it here in this chapter. You see, we also live in a world that is fallen. And in that world, there is harshness and hardness and brutality. Uh, There is curse. There is broken promise. Where forces of disharmony and chaos oppose God and his creative forces. Uh, A world that seems so successful so influential, a world full of powerful people and powerful weapons. But let me ask you, where is the focus of conflict between those two opposing forces? Where where does the conflict coincide? It coincides with the people of God, doesn't it? They are both the objects of God's promise and the focus of human evil. They are in the crosshairs, as it were. They are caught in this cosmic struggle that is gruesome and ruthless and real. Can you see what I'm saying? You see, I think that the book of Exodus captures an eternal reality. And that reality is played out time and time again in the Bible. And it's a reality that will be played out time and time again until evil is done away with. You see, we live in a world which, that God created, but where evil struggles for supremacy with gruesome and real power. And we, the people of God, are caught up in that conflict. And for that reason, we ought, ought we not to expect that life will not be comfortable or easy? Friends, at times, let me tell you, that in our world, and this has been so in our life in ministry, uh, life has been a little bit like the like of life of Joseph in Egypt under God's blessing. Full of good things, full of prosperity, full of success. But if this spiritual conflict is true, then that will not always be the case, will it? At other times, it will be and has been in our life of ministry, full of conflict and difficulty most serious. That has pressed us to the very limits, that's sent us to doctors, that's sent us struggling for help, that's reduced us to tears, and to being on our knees, literally, beside our beds. In other words, it may sometimes be like cruel slavery under an anonymous king in Egypt. See, friends, that is a reality of life in a created but fallen world. However, there's great news for us, you see. Uh, The great news comes bursting from these pages. It's demonstrated in this story, but it is guaranteed in the New Testament. And that great news is that victory is assured. Uh, The forces of evil and chaos and disharmony will not succeed. Though God will sometimes seem to be absent, as he appears to be at various times in this story, I'm reading a book at the moment about God in the Old Testament and it names it has a term for this. It talks about Deus abscondicus. God is gone, absent. And there will be times in our lives when this is the case, as he seems to be here. But he's present, isn't he? He is working out his promises and they will be accomplished and blessing will win out over curse and fruitfulness will win out over barrenness. It may not be when we want it to, but life will win over death. And let me tell you, God the Creator will be God the Redeemer. And we have read the New Testament know this to be true. For the gospel proclaims that God sent his Son into the world. That Son submitted to the worst cruelty that the world could throw at him. And he triumphed over it. He defeated the forces of evil on the cross and that because of his victory, we know a time will come when those forces of evil will finally be judged and done away with. And the creator's purpose of blessing and fruitfulness there from Genesis 1 will triumph and there will be no more pain or tears or death. But that's not where I want to finish today. Um, You see, we're not yet at the end of God's purposes, are we? Guaranteed as they are in Christ. We're not yet in a place where the fallen world no longer holds sway. We live and work in a world that looks strong and which often acts with a high hand against uh, God's purposes for his world. And if we're Christians... We live in the crosshairs. We are caught up in this conflict. So what help can we gain from this passage for us? How can we know how to act from what this passage says? Well, I think the writer has given us a clue in his preservation of two names, Shipra and Pua. You see, in a marvellous display, display of sovereignty, God has acted to make sure that their names are recorded here for us. Now let me tell you about these. They simply delivered babies in an ancient world. You see, these women delivered babies in an ancient civilization where some of the greatest ancient civilizations existed and where some of the greatest pharaohs known in ancient history were those civilizations those pharaohs have their monuments for themselves still standing in the sands of egypt still to this day and yet in this story who are the ones that are remembered it's not the great ones it's these two midwives that god remembers why We see these these women sided with God and his purposes. At great personal risk, they aligned themselves with him and his purposes and God saw them. And he knew them. And he recorded them in his book. They were not insignificant to him. For they found their purpose, their identity with the creator of the world and his great purposes for redemption. Sisters and brothers in Christ, uh, please understand what I'm saying. You see, our God is a God with purpose. And His purpose is focused on redeeming the world. It is focused on bringing that world to know His Son. That's where He's going and that's where His energies are focused. And He calls us, His people, to line up with Him in that purpose. And in joining Him, you and I can make a difference. Now, Friends, we may not be people of influence and position. Our our names may never be heard on the radio. We may not have websites covered with our names. Our faces may never be seen on televisions. Heads may not turn when we walk down the street and talk about us as we pass. Our gravestones may never be inscribed with the words of men and women wanted to give us honour, and we may never be remembered by our fellow humans after our death. But if we are gods, and if we have lined ourselves up with his purposes, then God will remember. Then God will remember. And in the end, that's really what matters, isn't it? Uh And it's with that in mind, I want to end uh, this Bible talk with a a question and a story. I want each one of us to think about great Christians of the last century, century and a half perhaps, Uh, particularly great British Christians of the last century and a half. So you've got to stretch your brain a little bit. Uh, You know, uh, think about the preachers, the writers, think about your commentaries on your shelf in your library or whatever, the churchmen, the people of influence. You know the ones I mean, those ones that are almost uh, household names. Particularly amongst us as evangelicals, those who fought the hard battles and so on. Well, a number of years ago, I came across a book where a number of these great ones had written a chapter or two. And at the time, it was many years ago, it was about a man I'd never heard of. Uh, His name was Bash, and the book was called Bash, A Study of Spiritual Power. Now, Bash was not an impressive man, let me tell you. Uh, He was neither athletic nor adventurous. Uh, He claimed no academic prowess or artistic talent. Uh, He never acquired a position of senior church leadership anywhere, though he was a clergyman. In 1932, he joined the staff of Scripture Union in England. And for 30 years, he headed up a ministry to boys from private schools in England. Each year, he'd take a new group of young men and uh, he would evangelise them, then counsel them, then train them, then teach them, and then follow them up by letter for years after they left school. At the time of his death, these words were written about him in the church and national press in the United Kingdom. They were these. Bash was a quiet unassuming clergyman who never sought the limelight, hit the headlines or wanted preferment. And yet, whose influence within the Church of England during the last 50 years, listen to this, was probably greater than any of his contemporaries. For there there must be hundreds of men today, many in positions of responsibility, who thank God for him. Because it was through his ministry that they were led to Christian commitment. Now those who knew him well, those who worked with him, never again expect to see his like. For rarely can anyone have meant so much to so many as this quietly spoken and deeply spiritual man. You see, my guess is, uh, I know it's not true for some in this gathering, but many of you will have never heard of Bash before. But nearly every one of you has named in your brain earlier on People he discipled. John Stott, Michael Green, Dick Lucas, and many others whose books are on your shelves and whose preaching you have listened to perhaps at times. You see, Bash was like Shipra and Puah. He aligned himself with God's purposes and he quietly went about the work that God had given him to do, and God will remember him, for he was and is and will be, far from insignificant in God's eyes. And so will you be when you line yourself up with him and his purposes in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you to do this, to line yourself up with God's purposes in his son. I know you want to do that. I know that's where you are. I know that's why you're here. But I want you to see the great opportunities for ministry in the cities that you live in. That ministry may not be preaching to large audiences or being welcome to speak at conferences. It may simply be teaching ESL to Chinese immigrants and using the Bible to do it. It may be welcoming them into your home or going to to the local Member of Parliament to help argue their case for permanent residency, as I've done. Or it may be teaching children or organising for children to be taught or struggling with the administration that you'd love to have someone else do for you but you can't afford to take them on or praying for people or keeping an eye open for them and for those who are on their own at morning tea and, or struggling with the sermon for your congregation of 30 or 40 people. Or inviting hard-hearted Aussie neighbours over for dinner only to find they're not really interested in hearing about the Lord that you serve. Or visiting the 30th possible venue for a place to meet in for your church and then 40 and 50 and so on. Or, or helping cart the musical instruments in and out of your meeting places because there are not enough helpers to do it. Or giving of yourself uh, to, to any of those other ordinary host of important tasks that support the ministry of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such things demonstrate, you see, your partnership with God and his purposes in his world. Those things demonstrate that you're with him in this task he has in this world, which may look like a mustard seed, but which one day... Will look like the largest of trees and where the nations of the world will nest, as it were. They may not result, these things that you do, in human praise, and they may often be quiet, costly, unnoticed by other human beings. However, friends, a such actions seek the glory of your Lord and will be recognised by him for what they are on the day when he returns. So let me urge you to have this goal and to focus your life and your ministry in this way. Don't seek human fame, friends, for it will perish. Align yourself with God and his purposes and seek his glory. Pursue it, pray for it, work for it, if necessary, die for it. For on the last day, that is all that will remain. And you will find recognition from the only one who matters. For it is he who will welcome you by name and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Welcome into the joy of your master. Or perhaps, as one victorious in difficulty, he will dress you in white. And do to you what he promises the godly of the church of Sardis that he will do. He will acknowledge your name, your name before his father and his angels. And ensure that it is a name never blotted out of his book of life. Friends, keep that vision before you. It will slip away easily. So, so easily. Labor for this which will not perish. Let's pray. Father, we often find ourselves wondering who we are in a world that is so consumed with greatness. Father, we pray that we would, you would help us be focused yet again on aligning ourselves simply with you and your purposes. Seeking your glory, pursuing it, praying for it, working for it, knowing that on the last day, this is all that will remain. And Father, we seek recognition from you, the one and only, who matters. And thank you on that day, you'll welcome us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Welcome into the joy of your master. We thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.